0: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash ifreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 125 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that's Jake Gunderson. Hello also from Salt Lake City. You want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, so I am Jake Gunderson. I've been doing iOS development for almost five years. People might know me just from... I'm on the Ray Wenderlich podcast. I've participated in a number of, of Ray's books. And I do... I'm just a contract developer. So I just take gigs from wherever they come. Uh, I'm independent. So I usually manage several clients at once. And I actually worked with Andrew for a couple of years at Mixed and Key. So we know each other pretty well. Uh, we were friends before that. But yeah.
0: Hi, Jake. Um, yes, please. <laughs> so we brought you on to talk about Game Kit. Do you want to kind of give us a brief Yeah, of okay. so what a, it is? I'm gonna it's... I'm
2: gonna insert a correction because that's my fault, but we're
0: gonna talk about GamePlayKit, which Game is Play Kit. Different Ooh. than Game Kit.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say that. So yeah, so Gameplay Kit is a new framework in iOS 9. It's kind of independent, like it most people are gonna use it in conjunction with either SpriteKit or SceneKit. Kit. It's a set of tools for making games. But it's independent. I mean, you could use it in an app if there was something particular you needed. So it's not married to any particular other framework. It's kind of this independent thing. But as I said, it's just a kind of a handful of tools, usually for making games. So one of the big things in there is an entity component architecture system. So an entity component architecture is something you usually would use with games instead of like an inheritance architecture or... MVC and they're not mutually exclusive they can there's overlap between all those three but it's kind of a more common way to structure and architect games and there's also a handful of other things there's a suite of random number generators different kinds of random number generators and so the random number generators there's different some of them are more resource intensive and give you different kinds of randomness so you can kind of pick and choose you know how random you need your numbers to be what else is in there there's a handful of things I think there's an a star implementation in there I haven't looked deeply into that yet there's a min max stuff for AI. So
2: anyway, it's just a it's kind of just a podge podge of tools for making games. There's a state machine API, which I think I actually think is really interesting personally because I know about state machines, but also because it's actually a really general thing. It has nothing specific to do with games. State machines are useful in games, right? But so that's one of the things I thought was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, the state machine is is really nice, and I not mean, a lot of people just writing their own state machines that make games, but it's nice to have kind of a blessed implementation of that from Apple that comes with kind of some sample code to say, you know, this is how they envision, you know, where a state machine would go. And it's interesting because I wrote the platformer game starter kit for Ray Wenderlich, and I did most of the things that are in this new gameplay kit, but looking at how gameplay kit does it, there's definitely some improvements, improvements over what I did
0: in my starter kit. So so I guess the question is, um, what's the advantage of gameplay kit over, you know, just regular programming? Is there some kind of performance optimization, or do they give you better algorithms for things that you just don't have to invent on your own, or is it more just that, I don't know, It it's more native-ish? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I would say the, the benefits are probably all of those things. So I think the biggest one, especially for beginners or people that are maybe are, you know, accomplished developers, but haven't worked with games, is that you don't have to go out and figure out how to do it. Like the sample code that comes with gameplay kit is going to show you how to architect a more complex game system. And so rather than having to go out and read blogs and different things that are kind of unrelated to Coco, usually Coco's not like the first place people go when they want to make games. And so, you know, you'd have to go out and you'd have to learn about how a state machine is implemented in a game. You'd have to go out and learn how to implement a component architecture in a game. And now you don't have to. It's just it's this framework that comes with it. So for people that already don't necessarily know, like, this is the best way to do it, it's now kind of obvious because it's built right into the Cocoa frameworks, right? There are some performance benefits to some of the random number generators and stuff. I don't expect that their implementation of a state machine is way more performant than than just kind of a naive implementation of a state machine because that's usually not a performance bottleneck i could be wrong about that but i I wouldn't expect to see huge performances in that or in the component architecture system but definitely the some of the specifics there are i'm sure that they've optimized i know specifically with randomization that they give you lots of choices and tell you, you know these are faster and these are more random right And then I also think just having it already done for you, not having to do it yourself, spend the time doing it yourself, which a lot of it is just real standard stuff. If you have been making games for a while, you you know, like, so for example, a state machine, good use of a state machine is a state machine is going to drive the animations. So I'm probably just going to use like a platformer game as my reference point as we talk about this, because it's the thing I'm the most familiar with. But the state machine drives the animation. So when you're jumping... You run a different animation than when you're walking or when you're running or when you're attacking, right? And so each of those different animations are either a series of still frames that you run through like a video, or they can also be a series of sometimes the way you do animation is by breaking your character up into like arms and legs and head. And the way you animate them is you move or scale or whatever each component, and you can generate animations that way. So when you want to switch from one animation to another, A good way to do that is just to kind of look at the state machine and say, okay, am I jumping and am I running? And then as you change from one state to another, you trigger those different animations to play. And so a state machine is a very nice, well-structured way to kind of control character animations in a game.
0: Yeah, I could also see that maybe on like a tower defense game where your turret is turning or firing or something like that. Exactly,
2: yeah. I was going to say... Going back to sort of Chuck's original question, I think there's a lot of value, especially for new people in um, well-designed APIs beyond the advantage of them actually doing some of the work for you and just meaning you have to write less code. I think they can also guide you, and you kind of hinted at this, Jake, but they can, they can actually sort of guide you toward an architecture that actually makes sense. And, and sometimes those architectural choices, which are really important, are some of the hardest things when you're new to a particular problem. So, you know, they sort of enforce a structure on your code that makes sense that you might not have otherwise. And I, I think that could be particularly for some of this kind of, I don't know, the logic stuff, because this is like game logic that game play Kit helps you implement that helps guide you toward a good architecture for your logic.
1: I agree. I think that's one of the biggest benefits. And even if you're, I see a lot of times developers that are that are very experienced developers that have been writing apps for years. But when but the game space is different enough, and if they haven't been exposed to it before, they will have a tendency to fall into using architectural structures that they're familiar with from apps. And a lot of times you can dig yourself a hole that makes what you're trying to accomplish more difficult because you're using delegates or something that doesn't really make sense. I mean, delegates can make sense, but just as an example, like if you're using a delegate and you've got like three or four different like you've got a sprite representation of your main character and then you've got a object representation of your main character and you're using delegates to communicate back and forth that makes sense in an app architecture but that's a lot of overhead and unnecessary complication and it isn't necessarily i mean it doesn't necessarily make your game better to break those things up in that way the same way it does with an app and so having the component architecture in gameplay kit it's like one of the first places now when people go to build games that's where they'll go first, and I totally agree that it's great to have that. Unity, for example, I've been learning that lately, and it the whole thing is this component architecture, and it's the first real deep exposure. I've, I've heard of component architecture before, but I've never used it a ton, but as I've been learning Unity, I'm starting to appreciate how it breaks you know, gaming pieces and code into parts that become reusable, but in a way that makes sense for games. I'd
2: like to sort of dig in a little bit to the specific parts of gameplay kit And one thing that you mentioned right at the beginning was that there's this component architecture. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Because when I hear component architecture, I mean, component is a really generic word. Component just means a thing, basically, right? A part of a whole. And so when I hear component architecture, it essentially means nothing to me. So I'm curious to know what that really means in terms of of game development and and what this system helps you do.
1: Yeah. So it is a little difficult to understand, especially if you haven't been exposed to like the the alternatives. I mean, like anything with coding, right? But I'll do the best I can. So generally, and again, I'll use my own platformer game kit as an example. When I first wrote that, I used an inheritance architecture. So for example, the I wrote my own physics engine to handle collisions and gravity and jumping and running and all that stuff. And the physics engine code applies to both the, well, to anything that's like a physics object in the game, which In my case is the main character primarily, but it also applies to enemies and it also applies to some of the objects and like power ups and things that exist in the world. And so I needed to write code that said, you know, don't allow the character to walk through a wall or to fall through a floor. And then, you know, that same code needs to apply to enemies and that same code needs to apply to game objects. So I used an inheritance architecture and that worked. But I ran into the exact problem that is laid out by the docs and by some of the posts that have been written about game about component architecture. You end up with really heavy superclasses. So you're writing all this, you know, physics logic and collision detection, and because it's shared across all these different objects, you end up with this giant superclass object that handles all those things, right? Well, so in a component architecture, instead of inheriting, you use composition, and so you you write a physics object component and then the the game character owns a physics component owns one of those objects and each enemy character owns one of those objects and so the only thing that needs to be in that physics object is kind of the physics detection and collision stuff logic and then everybody can just kind of use it when they need it and game objects that don't need it don't have to have it. And so that's does that make sense? That's kind of the primary difference. And that's the primary reason you use it is because otherwise you end up with really heavy code heavy superclasses and lots of branching in those superclasses. Yeah, that helps. So you'll have like a rendering object that generically renders sprites and you'll have a physics component and then you'll have like a you might have like a life component that handles keeping track of how much life the player has left and maybe enemies too, things like that.
2: So, related to the thing we were just talking about, why, how does the component kit API in, in Gameplay Kit really benefit you? Why, why can't you just organize your code using this sort of architecture yourself? What does an API do for you?
1: Well, you can. You can implement it yourself. It just gives you kind of a standard way of doing it. Like, it's not obvious how to, for example, most games are driven by the render loop. So, 60 times a second, you're going to draw to the screen. And you usually want to run all your logic right before rendering 60 times a second. And in SpriteKit, for example, that's broken up into different... You've got different entry points into the render loop. So you've got like before physics run, after physics run, before animations run, after animations run, etc. So it's not obvious where when you structure your component kit system... It's not obvious where you like, how do you update all the components when you say you have a player and he's got a physics engine component and he's got a render component and he's got an animation component or whatever. How do you connect all of those components? Because each of those, the logic in each of those components needs to be run at at a certain time. And so the component API kind of takes care of some of that for you. And it's not, I mean, it wouldn't be super hard to figure that out and write it yourself, but it's kind of like, well, you don't have to, it's already
2: done in kind of a standard way. Okay, interesting. I'm actually reading I'm sort of skimming through the documentation for the <laughs> for the component stuff and one thing it says is instead of organizing a game's object model in terms of what each game object is, the entity component pattern encourages you to think about what each game object does and I don't know, that's yeah. size, but
1: so the classes in gameplay kit are GK entity and GK component. So each thing in your game is going to be an entity and then it will in- you will add uh, some number of components to it for whatever logic you need it to, to run. And then each component has, it looks like a update with delta
2: time method on each component. Okay. And components are sort of, I don't know, like essentially like a block of functionality. So it's something that yeah. an entity might do and, and multiple different entities will share components because they do the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like your character and and enemies even though they're different, they both have to know how to move or shoot at each other or something, right? Right. Cool. That makes some sense.
0: I like the idea of kind of a composable or modular design to to these so that, yeah, you can easily share functionality between the different entities, I guess, in your system. Right, right. So I kind of want to veer into randomization. I mean, I guess as kind of a casual, I don't want to say casual, but as a non-game programmer, I mean, most of the time I'm just using whatever random number generator is provided by the framework or programming language I'm using. So why do you need different types of random for games?
1: I've run through this API real quick, but I I mean, I, I'm going to just tell you what I know. It might not be 100% accurate. But the basic idea, which is accurate, is that different random algorithms are more or less random and they are more or less Resource-intensive. So, depending on what you're trying to do, you might the level of randomness might not be random enough, or it may not feel quite right. And then the other thing, besides just being more or less random and more or less, you know, performant, you can also use different distributions. So, there's um the C curve distribution where things kind of okay. versus a uniform distribution. So you can think about like as you develop, and this is a lot of this is for like either procedural generation of levels or for AI behaviors, you don't want an enemy AI to always behave exactly the same way you want there to be some variation in how it behaves. And then so you give it these rules, but then you kind of add some randomization in there. And you know, maybe you want that randomization to be a uniform distribution. So it has an equal, it's equally likely that it will do, you know, a one of four basic behaviors. Or you might want it to do you know, certain things way more often than other things. And that's where the distribution comes in. It just gives us more because the arc for random is the one I always use in most of my code. But there are times when that's not, maybe it's too resource intensive or whatever. It's not quite random enough. I mean, there are times when that's not the best choice. And so the randomization classes in gameplay give you more options.
0: Gotcha. Should we talk about state machines? I think we all kind of have an idea of what they
2: are, but I don't know if all of our listeners will. Yeah, I'd love to talk about state machines, because I, I think this is a, an interesting part of game kit. Maybe a lot of gameplay kit is actually usable in non-game apps, but this was the thing that sort of stuck out to me as, as really, you know, yeah, the, yeah, it's important in games, but I've used state machines in apps that I've written before, so.
0: Yeah, I have as well. And the idea basically is that you have several states with particular rules for how an object or entity moves from one state to the other. I mean, that's essentially what a state machine is.
2: Right. So yeah, uh, go ahead, it might
1: Jake. be, it might be worth injecting at this point that a state machine, one of the rules of a state machine is that you can be in one state and only one state yes. at any given time. Yeah. So that's important to keep in mind as you think about like, how would I use this? Cause you can't, the idea of a state machine is that the states don't mix together. You You have one and only one state and you can be in that state or another state, but that's kind of how a state machine works.
0: Yeah. And so, for example, I mean, you could go from flying to driving and the transition is is when you reach elevation zero or something like that, where, you know, there are particular things that cause your entity to move from one state to the other. And it can be defined however you want, depending on what your game has to do.
1: Right. The classes that Apple provides are the GK state and GK state machine classes And then on a GK state machine, you've got all these methods like can enter state, enter state. So you can set up logic that says, you know, from this state, I can only enter, you know, these three states of the eight states available. And then you've got an enter state method so that you can, like you just mentioned, you can kind of handle transitions. And so, again, it's not something you couldn't write yourself, but it kind of gives you a nice complete implementation that you can start with. And if you're unfamiliar, that's a huge help.
0: Yeah, and state machine libraries that I've used in other languages, I usually wind up wrapping in something else. So instead of directly calling, you know, um, whatever entity, uh, you know, go to the next state, I can't remember exactly what the the name of the method was, but, you know, instead of saying go to the next state, what I say is, you know, so it intercepts a button press, you know, or a tap on the screen on your iOS device, and that triggers the hero.jump method and that jump method then speaks to the state machine and tells it to transition. Right. And, and that and, way and it's my, named what it is, what it actually does. So what you see on the screen is the name of the method.
1: Yeah. And in my, again, in my, um, my platformers game, I used the state machine, but the st- way I structured it, the code was more naive. And so i had a lot of code in an update method. I wrote a lot of logic just kind of writing the update method. So for example, if you were running on the ground, you were in a, like this running state and you were running, it was doing a running animation and then you hit the jump button. The first thing it looks for is it checks to make sure you're on the ground, right? Because if mm-hmm. you can't jump out of midair. And so if you were on the ground, then you knew you were in this running state. And I actually checked whether I was on the ground. In some places I checked the state I was in and other places I checked like the conditions that would indicate what state I was in. But the nice thing about gameplay kit is it kind of it puts more structure around that. And so you just say, you know, if I'm in a running state and I hit the jump button, I know that I can enter a jumping state because I'm in a running state. Right. And if I wasn't on the ground, I would be in a falling state. And so that's when I can't jump is when I'm in this falling state. And so the again, the, the gameplay kit puts more structure and more kind of it's just a more a cleaner implementation than like I say the, the one I did, which was. The game I built was not complicated enough that it wasn't understandable, but if it did get much more complicated then having this cleaner, more structured state machine implementation is that's when it really starts to help and it helps you not get confused and lost with what you're doing. And even my, I had like seven or eight states, and that was enough that as I was building it, there were several times where I made mistakes because I had a double jump state, right? You can only enter the double
2: jump state from the jumping state or the falling state, and that got a little tricky, so... I like the, if you look at the, at the gameplay kit state machine API, it's actually really simple. There are just two classes. I think there's GK state machine, which represents a state machine. And then there's a class called GK state that I think you're supposed to subclass. And there really are not that many methods on GK state. You sort of just have a can enter state method that returns yes or no, depending on whether the state passed in. You know, is a valid transition from the current one, but then they also have the update with delta time method, which I suppose that is kind of specific to games. But so that you can actually do your—I don't know what you call that in in a game—but your processing on every on every update within a state, since the state may know how that should work. You know.
1: Yeah. I'm curious. I haven't used state machines. I've only used them in games. I would be interested in you guys, some examples of where you've implemented a state machine in
2: a non-game context. That'd be interesting to me. Yeah, I can think of one off the top of my head. A lot of times if you have sort of a, well, a command line app is actually a good example, but, you know, a command line app that takes text inputs and say, you know, a a user types a command and then you prompt them and you want more information and then, um, you know, they enter another command and, You want to structure your program so that it knows how to take that input and process it in a way way that makes sense. And it needs to know whether a particular command is valid in the current state or not, right? So, you know, if you're at the top level, like the top level menu, then there's a certain list of commands or states that can be entered. You know, and then each command may have subcommands, which essentially are further substates. And so that's a place where I've used state machines and you can think of, of similar places like that where you've got a user sort of going through a branching hierarchy of interaction.
0: Yeah, I've also done account management this way where it's in a active state or a canceled state or, a, you know, a, a lead state or a prospect state, you know, in marketing apps. So, you know, they just move through a progression there. And they can move forward or back depending on, you know, where you're negotiating, how you're negotiating, what you've sent them, how committed they are, things like that. And so you can get all kinds of complicated with that up to and including scoring them on different areas. And as the scores change, then they change states. So, I mean, I've seen that before. That's mostly on web applications. They submit a form and they,
2: they move into a different state. So just stuff like that. I think there are also places you can use state machines that a lot of people don't use them, but you can even use them just in sort of normal application logic. If you're writing networking code and you need to be able to handle errors and and retry and stuff like that, a lot of those kinds Mm -hmm. of systems can be modeled with state machines. And formalizing them as a state machine, I think, can sometimes help eliminate bugs. Because, you know, in some sense, all programming is handling various states and how to transition between them when... A lot of bugs come from the program being in some state that is unexpected, and then you try to do something that doesn't actually work in that state, right? And if you've formalized the states and what it means to transition between them and which transitions are valid, you can prevent some of those bugs. That makes sense.
1: So the MinMax Strategist stuff, I, don't, I know kind of what it's for, but I don't completely understand what it is. It's, it's used in artificial intelligence, but I don't have a full understanding. I can't really explain that
0: one very well. Well, maybe we'll find an AI expert that we can bring on and have them explain
1: that. I can talk a little bit about pathfinding, but if we're not ready, what were you going to say,
2: Andrew? Well, there's pathfinding. The other thing that Gameplay Kit has that I don't think we've talked about at all is the rule system stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think that would be interesting. I don't know how much you know about that, but it looks like there's this whole API for creating rule systems for your games. I actually, unfortunately, I don't know much about that. That's one I haven't looked at yet either. Oh, too bad. They're, yeah the word about fuzzy that. logic is used in the doc.
1: i know so <laughs> when I was, i'm just i'm looking at the docs as you're saying and i'm like is this something related to something i do know i haven't looked at the api but maybe i know the like underlying but i don't it sounds awesome though anytime there's fuzzy logic involved that sounds really exciting
2: well read up and we'll have you back on to talk about it someday.
0: yeah yeah but let's talk about pathfinding um, since that's familiar territory yeah
1: so i mentioned there was an a star implementation a star is a Form of pathfinding so pathfinding is a way to algorithmically cause if you think about a game like uh, like world of warcraft uh, not the or not world of warcraft but just like warcraft like warcraft 3 when you send out units you know and then they've got units and the units have to kind of walk around obstacles and they have to if there's two like sets of collections of players and they have to kind of weave through each other that's pathfinding So there's ways where you're trying to, and A-star is like an efficient algorithm to say, like, for example, if you've got an enemy player in, I don't know, maybe Zelda, Legend of Zelda, and then you've got your main player, Link, and how does the enemy, you know, get from where he is to seek Link, but like avoid obstacles on his way? And what's the most efficient path between where he is and where Link is based on obstacles? That's pathfinding. And so the A-star pathfinding algorithm, it's basically you break the game world into a grid, And then you basically assign each grid a value that says how difficult it is to go through that square. And so if you've got an obstacle, it's like a really high, like it's like, you know, an infinite level of difficulty because you can't go through it. I mean, Gauntlet's another good example where you've got walls and an enemy's got to figure out how to walk through a maze and get to you, right? So like you assign values to each place in the grid. And then the A star algorithm goes through and it adds up like every possible way of getting from point A to point B and it picks the cheapest one. And you can assign higher values to like walking through quicksand or things like that where it's not impenetrable, but it slows slows the enemy or the character down. So that's kind of how A star works. And that's kind of the idea of pathfinding. And so the GK graph and the GK graph node are the replay gameplay kits methods for building pathfinding algorithms. Um, does so, that make
0: sense? Yeah. So you build your own graph with graph nodes, and then you make those assignments inside of the graph node. Yeah. And do you subclass graph node in order to get like quicksand or mountain? Um, I am not sure about that. Okay.
1: Fair enough. See, there's a find path from node to node method. Anyway, yeah. I mean. I haven't worked with some of these APIs. I just kind of have a generic sense of what they're for because I've solved the problems they solve without the help of the of
0: these of this API. Hmm. But yeah, when I was in college we had to build tank capture the flag game. Right. So yeah, I, I get I get a lot of this stuff, you know, you couldn't go through a wall. I mean, we had to learn all kinds of different algorithms and I remember doing like Bayesian something or other and this and that. But uh uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And there are ways to make it, you know, you can apply it. To, the immediate thing that you think of when you think of pathfinding is the top down, you know, square based levels. But you can apply um, the same logic to like a platformer where, you know, you the enemy has different ways of jumping on different platforms to get from where it is to where you are you can still cut it into a grid and say, you know, the cost of jumping from here to here is infinite because the enemy can't jump that high. And so that's not a valid path, right? So you can use it in more than just the obvious ways
2: to create AI. I hadn't even thought of that. but well, That makes sense. I was just gonna say that's interesting. And, and reading about this pathfinding API in Game Kit, one thing that I, I think is interesting and sort of different than some of the other APIs we've talked about in Kit is that, it's actually not very abstract. It's more like uh, you you actually do have shapes and positions on a board and all that. And, it, and like there's a class called GK Obstacle and there's a GK Polygon Obstacle, right? And so it really is sort of concerned with the geometry of your game. And I kind of wonder, it seems like it's basically designed for 2D movement. And if you're doing 3D pathfinding, I'm guessing that sort of really complicates things, unless... 3d movement is 2d but imagine like a game where you fly in 3d do you know anything about that jake is that something you can do with gameplay kit or is that a way harder problem that is a good
1: question i don't know like logically adding a third dimension it makes it more complicated to think about it but like mathematically usually it's the same principles apply but whether or not the gk graph node can be used in 3d i I don't know it it wouldn't surprise me if the answer was yes or no
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, looking at the API, it looks like there's a way to actually assign connected nodes. And so, conceivably, Mm -hmm. if you were flying, you know, you could add a node that is the mountain. And obviously, that is way super high, you know, even if you're flying. But, you know, maybe if you go up to, you know, two nodes upward, then, you know, then it becomes you can fly over the mountain. Or, yeah, it looks like you can just... Yeah. You can say re- these are connected so you can have, you know, multi-dimensional connected nodes, and then you've just got to be smart enough to figure out that that node means you're moving higher in elevation as well as across the map.
1: Yeah, that's my read too, is that your base class, the GK graph node, is abstract enough to handle a variety of things, but then there's also a 2D subclass of that for specifically kind of yeah. the examples I gave. But it does look like as long as you can break your logic In 3D space, into a series of connected nodes, you should be able to use these algorithms to kind of solve those same kind of problems.
0: Yeah, and I've also seen games that you know they kind of have that 3D element, but essentially it's just three planes, and then it's figuring out whether and when you can move to the other plane.
1: Yeah, a lot of games they're rendered in 3D, but the like if you look at them, you're like, really? This is a like all the logic happens in you know two dimensions. So.
0: Yep. And then moving from one plane to another is just a different rule set.
1: Yeah. Do you want to talk about goals and behaviors?
0: Yeah. I think this could get interesting. So,
1: okay. There's another set of classes, a GK agent and GK goal. And so some examples of this are having like a set of enemies, like chase a player around. What is that called? Steering behaviors or having some enemies flee from other enemies These are kind of the the problem space of GK agent and GK goals.
0: Okay. Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of like, again, if you're playing that capture the flag or something and you're driving your cart, the goal would be the flag. But it sounds like that's not the case. It's something else. Yeah. This is the AIs in your system and providing behaviors to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of the examples from the API is goal to seek agent, goal to flee agent, goal to reach target, goal to wander, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of the GK goal class, but you can also do on the GK agent, you can define acceleration and speed. And so you say, you know, I want this agent to seek this agent at this speed that you just let it go and it will do it. Does that make sense? So, I mean, that's like that logic is not super hard to implement, but it's way easier if you can just say, you know, I want this thing to chase after this thing and this is its max speed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because then you don't have to solve that yourself. You just, you you can define it in general and common terms and you don't have to build the abstractions yourself. Right. And I'm wondering
1: if there's stack. So if you say, you know, I want this thing to chase this thing, but to flee from this thing at the same time, and then you just kind of let it go and see what happens. But I'm not sure. Yeah, the agent evaluates each JK goal object listing its behavior property. So you can have more than one
0: well, that's interesting. It has a, a radius on it as well. So I'm assuming that then if your goal... So let's say your one AI is slightly slower than the other AI or the player. And so once the player gets away, gets outside that radius, then it stops evaluating it. It's also to avoid it
1: actually overlapping too much. So if you wanted to like give a kind of a float space where you're like, I don't ever actually want these to touch, you can use radius for that, it looks like.
0: Okay. So... Huh. So one thing I'm seeing here too is that this all says
2: TVOS on it. You're just looking at the wrong link, but ah. it's an iOS framework, but it's TVOS. An iOS. Okay. TVOS is essentially iOS, so right. And it's actually available on OS 10 as well.
0: Yeah, I thought I read that
2: somewhere, but then I. Apple's been doing a good job the last few years of making it so these frameworks that are sort of, I don't know what you'd call them, they're not UI kit or AppKit, right? These frameworks that are separate from the actual UI conventions of the platform are on both OS X and iOS. And of course now that TVOS is a thing and watch os to some degree they're all on there too so especially for games they've been thinking from the beginning that you can make a game that will work on both os 10 and ios and now TVOS without having to rewrite the whole thing which is nice
0: yeah so i guess the other thing that i'm wondering about and you brought this up earlier jake is does gameplay kit work with uh, unity or some of these other systems or is this you know kind Ooh. of a different system altogether
1: I mean it works in the context of objective C or Swift code. So Unity is kind of a contained system. Now you could build a plugin for Unity that relied on GameKit and then expose or gameplay kit and then expose some of gameplay kit stuff to Unity, but I mean there are two different environments and so you in order to use gameplay kit in Unity you'd need to write that plugin. But yeah, I mean a- anywhere you have access to, you know, like Apple's code, framework-level code, you could use it. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. I can say that the source examples that come with, that are in the documentation are quite good, and they do a great job of covering a lot of the different classes and, and options you have available. And so if you're interested in this, like the best way to jump into it, at least right now, is to read the docs and then start looking at the, playing with the sample code, because there's, there's three or four different projects, and they're all pretty significant. When SpriteKit first came out, they gave us a huge sample project for that. So for whatever reason, the sample projects that have come with the game frameworks from Apple are much more fully developed than a
2: lot of the sample code we get, you know, with AV Foundation or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's been pretty nice, right? It must be the the overall team that works on the game APIs for Apple's platforms is just, you know, it's kind of embedded in the team that they're going to produce really good sample code. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in fact, with the first SpriteKit game, they brought in a game designer. I can't remember his name right now, but he's like a really well known game designer to build the
2: game that they then, you know, produce the sample code for. I wanted to talk to you about not really specifically with gameplay kit, but all of these game frameworks that are on iOS now. It seems to me like one of the big problems with using them is they limit you to being on Apple's platforms. You can't be cross-platform if you use them. Games otherwise, unlike, you know, in contrast to regular apps, games typically lend themselves really well to being cross-platform because they take over the whole screen. They define their own UI conventions. They don't need to match a platform's UI conventions. They typically don't do anything that is really specific to a particular platform, you know, they're... They implement all of their own logic and graphics and all that. And for that reason, a lot of games seem like they are cross cross-platform. And I wonder if you think that these frameworks are really seeing very wide adoption among serious game developers or if they're basically just being used by hobbyists and slime people. Or maybe yeah, not
1: Yeah. No. I can tell you what I do know, which it which doesn't fully answer your question, but if you go to like I I go to the local independent gaming club from time to time. And when I go there, like 90% of those people are on Unity. And a lot of them are targeting iOS, but they also want to target Android. They also want to target... But I mean, even those that are primarily looking at building an iOS game first, they are using Unity. And that could be, you know, a lot of different reasons... Obviously, the access to Unity is easier because you don't have to have a Mac. You don't, have, you know, any system that you have, you can run Unity on. And Unity is also, I think, from a game developer's point of view, from, from a game designer's point of view, Unity's easier to kind of get stuff going. The The interactive editor in Unity is really robust. And so you can, you know, visually drop elements into a scene and then hit run and then it starts running and you can edit the game using the same editor as you play it, as you use to build it. And so Apple's tools like the scene kit or the, well, the scene kit editor, which will edit collada files and the sprite Kit editor, which will edit SKS scene files. These tools are good. And every year they give us more of these tools, but they are still several steps behind unity is my primary example, but I, there are other tools out there that are, you know, similar to unity. I just, I'm familiar with unity. So from the perspective of, like, if I want to be a game designer and I want to get into games, like, where should I go? It seems like usually the answer to that is Unity. But what I do see people using Sprite Kit and SceneKit is people like us, Cocoa developers, who are interested in doing games. And I'm sure that there are examples of great games on the App Store that use those tools, but... Uh, it does seem like, you know, people that are focused primarily on games and get into like programming space from the perspective of wanting to make games. These days, it seems like Unity is more appealing to this group of people. That's my impression. I would love to hear from other people if they've got some counterexamples, but.
2: Yeah, I, that's sort of the impression that yeah. I got to. I just as an interesting point of history, Unity was originally an OS ten only thing. I, I can't remember what p- platforms they allowed you to deploy to at first, but the tools themselves were. Mac only when they first came out. And in fact, they were announced at WWDC, which is kind of crazy.
1: (laughs) Cool. That is interesting. I got into iOS programming thinking I wanted to do games, but at the time, Unity was much less developed and way more expensive. And Cocos 2D was like the kind of the forefront. If you want to make games on iOS, you you looked at Cocos 2D first, kind of. And so I learned Cocos 2D first, and then I learned SpriteKit, and then I learned SceneKit. And so I kind of came at it from a different angle. And I think there's other a lot of people like me who kind of have come to it through that same path. But it does seem like um, these days, new
2: people that are just coming into the space are are looking at Unity. I'd be kind of interested for somebody to like take the top, you know, two. I saw I saw a thing recently, a blog post recently where somebody downloaded the top 100 apps on the app store and then they they looked through the. Binary to figure out which libraries the apps were using. And then they kind of compiled some statistics to figure out the most popular third party libraries in the top 100 iOS apps on the store. But it'd be interesting to have somebody do that with games and then figure out which technology they're using for, you know, which game engine they're using.
1: Yeah. I thought that same thing. I would love to know if you just look at the top 100 games, like what are people using? Because then there's also just people not writing their own engine. They're not using any pre built engine at all. And I'm guessing some of the bigger studios, that's what they're doing. So,
2: yeah, so bigger studios will write their own engines, but I think even some of the bigger studios use, you know, like Unity or Unreal uh, the Unreal Engine, right, yeah, that kind of
0: yeah. thing. All right, well, I think we're kind of winding down. Should we get to the picks?
2: Sounds good. Yeah. All right, Andrew, what are your picks? I have three picks today, and to make up for last week, they're all iOS development related. They're not just fluffy stuff. So my first pick is a set of tools called Fastlane. I was talking to Chuck a little bit about them before the show started, and they're pretty well known now. But they're just a s- bunch of iOS tools for automating common iOS development tasks, including building your projects, testing your projects, downloading provisioning profiles, fixing code signing, uploading to iTunes Connect, you know, for test flight and the App Store. They can also upload to some other, you know, beta testing services. And um, there's a tool that's part of the suite that will automatically take screenshots of your app, which is pretty nice because. You just run the tool and it uses the UI testing automation stuff to bring up your app, take a screenshot in of all the things you want to take in every single language you support on every device you support, and then upload all that metadata to iTunes Connect. Pretty cool stuff, and it all you can all integrate it with a build server like Jenkins or something. So that's Fastlane. The next thing is um, a three-part blog post. I don't think I actually know what the this guy's name is, but Jay Emmons whatever his actual name is. Anyway, he has a series of blog posts on Swift state machines, and, and it kind of goes along with what we were talking about, about state machines. He's not talking about games at all. He's actually showing you how state machines can be used to implement sort of normal app logic, and in particular, some networking stuff. And he has some real Swift code that uses features that are, you know, that are particular to Swift to do this in a pretty nice way. So that's my second pick. And my third pick is this thing that I just mentioned this post it's by Ryan Olson where he downloaded the top 100 apps and then did some analysis of them and and looked at like how many classes are in each app and which libraries they're using and uh, it's pretty interesting like the fact that that Facebook's apps and Google's apps have the most number of classes I think it was Facebook he doesn't actually say he hints at it but Facebook had the most number of Objective-C classes and it had 15 times the median So it was like almost 20,000 classes, which is crazy. And the top library was the Facebook SDK, which is also not surprising. But anyway, that was an interesting post. Those are my picks.
0: All right. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is I've had this standing desk for a while, just sitting in my office, probably a few years. I built it. It's the Lifehacker IKEA standing desk. I'll go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes. But anyway, I did a quick Periscope which I should also pick on the show. I think I might've picked it before showing how I have it set up. I just barely moved everything over to it, including my recording setup. And the idea is, is that I want to basically do all of my calls, conference calls, mastermind groups and podcasts standing instead of sitting. What that means is that Tuesdays and Wednesdays are long days, but anyway, I'm put all this together so you can go check it out. I've been doing a Periscope about every weekday, and so I'll put a link to that in there as well. I'm calling the series Upgrading from Yesterday, and the idea is is just, you know, I'm talking about how I'm doing better each day than the day before. I am also planning on doing some online conferences, and uh, there's an episode on that as well. It's episode number six, and if you look at the list, uh, you'll see that I'm actually planning on doing a remote conference for iOS in April. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for it, and I'll put more information up when I have it. And, yeah, so I'll also pick Periscope. I'm really, really liking Periscope. And if you don't know what it is, I'll just give you a brief overview. It is a program. It's actually owned by Twitter now. And what you do is you get it on your phone, and you can actually follow me. My Periscope handle is the same as my Twitter handle. makes sense because Twitter owns it. Um, But what it does is it allows you to live broadcast from your phone, Mine have been anywhere from 6 to 20 minutes, just depending on what I was talking about. Anyway, then people can actually sign on and watch. If you tap the screen, then it gives them hearts. So if you really like what what you're seeing or hearing, then you can do that. And you can also send chat messages. And the person doing the Periscope can see those and reply. And I usually try and reply if I recognize somebody coming on or uh, somebody says something, you know, I'll stop and say something about it. So yeah, so if you're interested in that, you can go check it out. Periscope app is available on Android and iOS. So yeah, go check all that stuff out. I'm really, really enjoying Periscope and I'm enjoying kind of the interaction that I get with folks. So anyway, those are my picks. Jake, what are your picks? So I'm going to pick the
1: sample code for the gameplay kit. If you're interested in gameplay kit, the sample code is an awesome resource to learn more about it, just how to use it. I also am going to pick the iOS Games by Tutorials by Ray Wenderlich. Now, normally that would be very self-serving, but I am not actually participating this year. So I was on it last year, but the new one that's going to come out October 28th, which may, I'm not sure exactly when this recording will be released, but it'll be close, I assume, to uh, October 28th. That's when the new iOS games Bike tutorials are going to come out. And the great thing about Ray is he always uses the latest, greatest code strategies and technology. So the, the entire book will, you know, use gameplay kit where appropriate for, it, it's primarily on sprite kit, but it, gameplay kit's going to be throughout the book. So again, if you're interested in that, I think that'll be a great resource. And then the last thing I want to pick is this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. So my wife read this book. I read parts of it. It's not a great read, but the basic idea is that you go through your, everything you own and you throw most of it away. The only stuff you keep is the stuff that really makes you happy. And so my wife has been on this like campaign to clean up our house. And you would be surprised at how great you feel when you look, you go into like a closet and instead of having a pile of junk in there, the only stuff that's left is stuff that you actually value. And so even though the book's kind of, um, it's just hard to relate to the perspective of the person because she talks about how as a teenager, she spent all day cleaning her room and I was like, I don't, I don't get this person. But the impact of kind of her principles are actually, I've really enjoyed uh, a cleaner, you know, nicer
2: place to live. So uh, Jake, either, either read it or have your wife read it. Jake, I've been to your house, and I've always thought it was exceptionally uncluttered, so I'm <laughs> not well, really so, sure you guys needed that book.
1: Yeah, the thing is is that we don't, we don't have, like, piles of stuff everywhere, but if you go into our garage, like, we have moved more times than years we have been married, me and my wife. Oh, wow. And every time we move, there is, like, boxes and boxes of stuff that we don't ever unpack that we just move. Well, that's, um,
2: you could write a book about that as a, as a cleanup <laughs> scheme, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah, we're not like, we're not the most, we weren't super cluttery to begin with, but like we went through like a bookshelf full of books and we got rid of like probably 80% of those books cause we're not going to read them. And now when I look at that bookshelf, what's there is only stuff that I'm like happy to see on that shelf. So really, it's a really interesting point of view. So anyway, that's my, that's my last pick.
0: Awesome. Well, if people want to uh, follow up with you, follow you on Twitter, just see what you're about, where do they go, Jake?
1: So it's Fat Jake with two T's. It's hard to remember because there's two T's in it, but it's Fat Jake with two T's on Twitter. Uh, that's the best place to find me.
0: Fat spelled like of the Hut with two T's. Yep. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Jake. This was yeah, a lot thanks. of fun. And we'll... Thanks. I was happy to be here. Yeah. We'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more would you like to join a conversation with the ifreaks and their guests want to support the show we have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time you can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash form